I know some of you, I know that some of you grew up in church, and some of you, you know, didn't have as much of an encounter as a young person in church. But some of you, if you grew up in church, you might have done these little crafts um, whenever you went to Bible school or Sunday school. Or, you know, for those of us at a certain age, yes, I include myself because I remember it, going to Dumas Baptist Church in Dumas, Mississippi, you went to training union. And um, you may have done crafts in those things. How many of you remember doing little crafts workshops? You, you've worked plenty with construction paper and glue and glitter and macaroni and beads and yarn. All right. And we still do that because you know what? Kids are into that. Kids like that kind of stuff, or at least it seems like they do. Um, I know uh, my kids seem to enjoy the macaroni art they bring home from church at times, or if it's covered with beans or something. It's always unique. Uh, sometimes they make the little butter tubes in the submarines. And this is cool stuff. Um, thank you, Miss Phyllis and, and, and children's workers and, and uh, preschool workers that help do that. I really mean that. It, it does mean a lot because in a way it's art, but it also is about teaching lessons. Some of those artworks, those crafts that you may have done, um, I remember doing this as a, as a kid, was I had this little strip of leather. A little strip of leather, and it had on it some beads. It had a black bead, a red bead, a white bead, a, 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 a blue bead, a green bead, and a yellow bead. And each of those told a story. We called it the Gospel by Colors. That it was an easy way to memorize. And that, that video kind of shows what that is. That, that black says that we deserve death, but Jesus, red, died in our place so that we can be made clean. We can be made whole, which is the white bead. And after that, following Jesus and being made clean, we are to follow as His children, follow as kingdom people, blue, and to grow green in, in living out our faith so that whenever we leave this world, we will have lived faithfully until that one day we get to go to heaven, which is the yellow bead, the hope of eternity. Good tools with a very simple message. Not really anything hard about that. Just looking at the colors of the beads and it could tell a story. Some of you still might have that in a craft drawer somewhere. Something that you've kept as a keepsake that you remember from a summer camp. But here's the thing. While it is a good tool... A good memorization instrument, it may be a fun keepsake, it is only truly useful if it's used. It is only a really good tool if you can put it to purpose. I have some tools. I know it's amazing because you may think, does Brother Jerome ever work on anything? Like fix anything? Seems like he always has the people fix his cars and that kind of thing. But I do have some tools that I find are useful to me. I can use these tools to fix a few things around the house. I can, you can, I'm a little bit handy. I'm not the most handy guy in the world, but I'm a little bit handy. But I only have tools that are useful to me, and I have a few that are still in a bucket that I never, ever use. Only my in-laws or, or my friends or my, my father, only they use it when they come to my house. And I sit there and look, and I just I kind of scratch my head, and I think, well, they're good and useful to have, but I never use them. So how good are they really for me to have? I know that's an ongoing debate. How you know, a man can never have too many tools. But they're only good tools if I find use for them. Here's the thing. Many of us have grown up in church. We've heard this message. We sometimes when we even hear the word, hey, we're gonna talk about sharing the gospel, we kind of tune out because we're like, I've got those tools. Okay, that's awesome. 
Are they useful? Are you putting them into use so that they will be useful? Do you wake up with a sense of urgency that I can't wait to share and use these? Last week we talked about what Paul was saying to the church at Corinth about this waking up to what Jesus had done for them. Being alert and living that out. We're going to continue our study, our series called Awakened. is this journey through the letters to, to Corinth. And I want to invite you to turn there in your Bible, if you will, uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, you're more than welcome to. I think it's on page 1011, maybe 1012. Um, I didn't check today, but it's, it's one of those two pages. So it's either, you know, flip one or the other. By the way, if you need to use one of our pew Bibles, um, we're so glad we have those. I thank you for those that have contributed to our Pass the Word Fund. Um, and if you need to use the pew Bible and you say, you know, I really don't have a Bible that I understand and can read for myself at home, here's what I want you to do. Take that Bible that's in the pew, open it and read it right now, when we were about to read it, and then when we leave here, take that Bible with you. Because it's our greatest joy to get a copy of God's Word in your hands and hopefully in your hearts. That's why we do this. It's not so we have decorations in the church. So if you're giving to that, that's what you're giving towards. So that we can put Bibles in the hands and hopefully in the hearts of people. But we're going to go into 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to see what Paul says about being mindful, being awoken, awakened, awoken, which one's the word? I'm not really sure. But being awake and alert to your responsibility, as Paul was very alert and very uh, aware of his. So let's stand together as we honor God in the reading of His Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at five verses. Um, for those looking for it, and, and not, not always... Um, didn't grow up learning how to look for things in the Bible. We're looking for the big letter two, number two, and then versus the little small numbers one through five. That's not meant to be demeaning or condescending. Come, people just don't know, and that's okay. We want to teach them. So this is what it says. It says in chapter two, verses one through five. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, use Your Word today as only You can. Open our eyes and our ears. Open our eyes to see what You have told us, what You have revealed to us. Open our ears so that we may know what it is like to hear Your Word, Your voice. And open our hearts so we may understand. Open our minds so we may comprehend what it is to know You and follow You. And Jesus, help me to be just Your servant today as people look to You and look to the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Now, we want to help people understand the Scriptures. So one of the things we tell people to do whenever they're opening up God's Word, wherever they find themselves studying, is to, is to start learning a little bit about the author, the audience, and the aim. Those three letters, those three words can help you in gaining some, some good footing, some good ground, so that what we don't do is just read a passage, think, okay, this means to me this. Well, a lot of people use the terminology means to me this, and 
they could totally miss the meaning of what's really there. And we want to help people gain an understanding of, of why this was written. Observe what God had said through His Word. Observe why it was written. Observe what it means. And then ask yourself, what am I willing to do about it? This letter was written by the Apostle Paul somewhere around uh, 20 to 22 years after Jesus had faced the cross. So there had been a little time span, but Paul had, had quickly began going throughout the known world at the time, sharing the Scripture, sharing the Gospel with the people from various provinces, various parts of the world. And here he's, he's writing this church that is sitting in between modern-day Macedonia and modern-day Greece in this little isthmus uh, in the city of Corinth. He's writing this church that he had helped found. And he's writing them because of a situation. He had heard, even all the way across the sea, even some a thousand miles away, he had heard the, the reports that there were difficulties and divisions. And I don't mean difficulties like, oh, they're just struggling. Or, no, they were having some serious sinful battles within the church. They were condoning things that were not good to condone. And they were trying to put on the nice mask that, well, it's, it's about grace. We can't judge anyone. But what it was leaving was just a, a, a wake of destruction within the church and in the, in the city at large. And he saw a lack of devotion. He saw an, an apathy to doctrine, that they were neglecting to grow in their knowledge and the grace of the Lord. And so he's written to show them and says, I want you to wake up to this reality. If you have trusted Jesus, you are not your own. That should wake you up. That should startle you. That should bring a new alertness and awareness unlike any other. And if today you're in this room and you're saying, well, I've never trusted Jesus as my Savior. i got news for you. God still owns you. You just don't know Him. And that is a terrible place to be. Biblically speaking, that is a terrible place to be because God has made you to know Him. He has made you to know what it means to trust in His salvation and to experience a relationship with Him and to walk through life and reject that is ultimately reject His offer that He extends to us beyond this life. But if we're going to trust Him and know that He is our owner and, and be alert to that and be awake to that, it's going to have incredible ramifications in our church and in our lives. Everything about us, in our families, in our work, wherever we're going. It's not only going to change our lives, it's going to change our lips. It's going to change what's in us, how we act that out, and what we proclaim. And if we're going to proclaim something that we believe, if we're going to proclaim, proclaim what we know to be true, there's going to be evidence of what we've claimed. Did you know that there's always evidence of what you talk about? Somewhere along the lines, if you're talking to someone else, they heard you say something. And they can now be a witness of what you've said and share that against you if you ever needed it in a court of law. They can share it to an employer or an employee. They can share it to another family member. There's evidence. Once the words have come out of your mouth to someone else, as long as you're not talking to yourself, you know, and kicking around, and people are just mumbling. People are going to hear what you've said. And they're going to be report that. Now, they may not always report exactly word for word, but they're going to hear at least the gist of the message. There's going to be some evidence. There's going to be something left behind from what we said. 
But I want to ask today, what is the proclamation evidence that's expected to be evident in a follower of Christ? If there's something that's meant to be different about our lives and our lips based on the gospel, what kind of evidence is meant to be left behind? What is, what is people supposed to say about that person and their words and their life? What evidence is, is, is left behind in the path of the follower of Christ? Well, to examine that evidence is meant to be visible in our life. We're going to look at the example and the evidence that was left behind by Paul's life. Is he's calling the church to say, hey, search what I did with you. Just look at what I did with you. It, the evidence is there. I want you to take a look at it. And here is what he has said to them about his time among them. And he says, if you want to see what kind of evidence is meant to be there, as we're looking at God's Word, we're going to look at Paul's life and see that the first exhibit, exhibit one, if we will, if we're going to make our case, is that Paul proclaimed the message of the gospel with simplicity. He said, I, I did something very, very simple among you. Now, it's interesting to note, when Paul came to the city of Corinth, he was coming down south into Greece, and he had gone through the way of Athens. Now, in Athens, if you look in the book of Acts, there's a beautiful message that Paul kind of takes the, the worldview and the philosophy and the, the way people were talking in Athens, and he tries to build a case on worldview and philosophy, and he does a really well, really great job. But unfortunately, that's, that's wrong to use the word unfortunately, but the evidence of what happened was there were converts that chose to follow Jesus in that moment. And I never want to belittle whether few or many come, but as far as the impact that he'd had in other cities, it wasn't as evident. And here he comes to Corinth, a city that was known for trade, a city that was known for all kinds of worldliness. And he says, I didn't, I didn't spin a big tale. I didn't make this big, profound argument. I came to you with a simple, simple message. But here's what it means if we're going to proclaim it with simplicity. If we're going to do as Paul did. First, this is how Paul did it with simplicity. He got the message there. He got the message there. Notice what the Scripture says. This is when I came to you. He didn't say, when I wrote to you a long ago, this is what I told you. You should be listening to the words I write because they're so important. He didn't say, when I sent you that Facebook message, you should have clicked on it and then shared it with many other followers. He didn't say, when I sent you that really bad Photoshop art of Jesus on a Microsoft wallpaper, you should have passed it on and forwarded it. He says, when I came to you... I know you're like, Pastor, you didn't have Facebook back then. But you get my gist. Paul said, the very simple part was that I came to you. I got there. Across the world, Paul's area and home was in the northern part of Israel. and He had gotten some thousands of miles away to the city of Corinth. He got the message there. And he got the message told. He got the message out. A writer and speaker from the mid-1900s, late-1900s, named Carl F.H. Henry, talked about this good news that we talk so much about. And he made a very powerful claim, and I, I agree with it. He says, the good news is only good news if it gets there in time. 
You may be thinking, well, the good news is good news no matter what, Pastor. That's, that's, just, that's just how it is. And I would agree with that in some way. But it's like that tool that you have. It may look useful, but if it never gets used, how useful is it? The good news is indeed the greatest thing ever. But it's no of no help if it doesn't get to the people who need it. It's got to get there and it's got to get out. It's got to be in their presence and it's got to be proclaimed. That's a simple task that we make so much harder. We're going to talk about how we make that so much harder. What does the simplicity look like? Well, according to Paul, he says, when I came to you, when I came to you, once again, getting it there, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And according to the evidence, when we look at Exhibit 1 of proclaiming the gospel with simplicity, Gospel simplicity, if we're asking what it looks like, it means that the message is about Christ and the cross. It's about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Those are what changed our life. Those are what changes others' lives. The other arguments are interesting. They are profound. They are unique. But if you're going to share a message to someone in need, if you're going to get the good news there and get the good news out, you cannot miss the simplicity and the beauty and the life-changing news that Christ is holy and good and Christ died for us who wasn't. And He overcame that grave. And I have placed my trust in Him and it has forever changed my life. If we are to share a message that forgets to share about Christ and the cross, we get hung up on, well, I'm a Baptist, or I believe this worldview, or, or I go to this church, or I'm a member of this program, and we miss out on sharing about who Christ is and the cross, we may have given someone a good talk, but we didn't give them the good news. Last week we talked about bragging on the Lord. Paul talked about boasting in the Lord. That it's a good thing. But it's the good thing when we share about how His story and our story have now collided together. And woe is me, I'm left different. Isaiah talked about that moment in the Old Testament. When he walked and beheld the Lord in all His glory in the temple. And the only thing he could say is, woe is me, I am a man completely ruined because I know what's been on my lips. I know what's been around me. God demonstrated His grace in that moment in the Old Testament. Much more so now that we see what God is willing to do to die for us in our place on the cross. How incredible that is. That that testimony is His story impacting our story. Who we were, who He is, and now who we are because of what He has done. We need to be willing to share that. Notice that Paul shares the gospel, says that gospel simplicity isn't necessarily about having a polished, slick spiel. How many of you would love to be able to just whip out a nice, clean, clever argument every time someone kind of debated you about the faith? I'll be honest. I like that. I like being like I'm the smartest person in the room. I do. I'll admit that. That's a part of my pride. It's not a good thing, but I'll admit it. That's just being transparent. But I think some of us have fears because we don't necessarily have that. And we 
neglect the simplicity of the gospel because we don't have these complex, full-out arguments well ironed out, ready to just throw out there and show people who's got the stuff. But look at this. When we look at Paul's life, the writer of 13 letters of the, of the New Testament, this father of the missionary movement, this one who transformed and with those with him began birthing churches all over the known world. Paul was very, very educated, but he says he didn't make brilliance of speech the high point of the message. Why? Because when you do that, sometimes it makes more about the messenger than it does about the message. And the message is that God saw us in our mess and He was willing to take our mess to transform all this mess into a masterpiece. A full demonstration of His grace. Paul was very knowledgeable, but he didn't make his wisdom the high point of the message. He didn't try to sound really smooth. He said, I didn't try to sound like I'm the wisest person in the room. In other words, the message doesn't really require some profound argument, but it does require a profound obedience. Why was Paul there? Because God wanted him there. Why did the message get there? Because God wanted him to get the message there. Why did the message get out? Because God wanted the message to get out. Because God so loved the world that He was willing to give His only begotten Son that whosoever shall believe in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It is God's will that we share the Gospel. We may not, we can debate on what God's will is, but that one is not left up to us. That is God's declaration that we are to be His witnesses unto all the earth. It doesn't require a profound argument, but it does require profound obedience. It says, Jesus, this is what you want me to do. Yes, sir. I'll do it. Not because I'm scared of you, but because I love you. And because I know you love me. And you always want what is best for me. What is all about your glory and ultimately my good. Paul had made it a personal determination to make Jesus Christ and the crucifixion the centerpiece of primary importance whenever he was having these conversations. Look what he says. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I decided to know. Now that doesn't mean that the only thing Paul ever talked about in 18 months in Corinth was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It would be really hard to order your food at a restaurant and say, what would you have today, sir? Jesus. I don't, I don't admonish you to do that when you go to lunch today, wherever you're going. They'll probably look at you puzzled. It might begin an interesting conversation, but that is not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that every single other issue was of, that was considered secondary was so distant from what he considered primary, the gospel and getting the gospel to people, getting it there and getting it out, getting it told, that everything else was considered as nothing in comparison. Everything else was considered as nothing in comparison. Consider this for a moment. Paul had such a passion for Jesus that it fueled his profound obedience. That he was willing to go through all kinds of crazy stuff just for Jesus. He was willing to go through travel where sometimes he was robbed. He was willing to go on a ship where sometimes he had shipwrecks. He was willing to be in prison. 
He was willing to be beaten. He was willing to be stoned. He was willing to be stripped naked and dragged through the street. He was willing to be imprisoned. He was willing to not run away when he had a chance. It wasn't because Paul's such a good guy. But he knew a good God. And what it was to obey that good God. And this passion for Jesus that fueled his profound obedience, it also in turn, it cultivated a deep compassion for other people. People, mind you, that weren't like Paul. If he wanted to just be around people that were like him, he would just go back to Jerusalem and stay there. That's where his tribal people lived. That's where his ethnic people were. That's the people that spoke the same language. Paul was able to to take the Old Testament and teach Old Testament scholars about Jesus. That God had called him and set him and, and a few others apart to go to places where people didn't speak necessarily the same language. They didn't hold the same values. But because of his desire to please this Jesus, He was willing to go and He was willing to demonstrate this compassionate, genuine love for people and give them the sweetest, greatest news ever. And in that, nothing else compared. What is the highest candle in your life? I just want you to think about that. Would sharing the Gospel sharing who Jesus is out of obedience to Him, would that be something that nothing else compares to in your life? I'm not asking you to feel guilty right now. I'm just asking you to really think about that. Ask the Holy Spirit to examine your life and say, does anything else compare with that? Is anything else of higher priority than that? I think we need to be asking ourselves that. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to examine us in that. Another exhibit we see here in Paul's proclamation, this evidence left behind, is that Paul says, hey, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when I came to you, once again, he got there, I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. What? Notice that what Paul's saying is, he says, I when he came to the opportunity to seize the moment and and share the story of Jesus, that he said, when I came to you, Corinthians, I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This guy who seemed so bold, this guy who was willing to, to be, you know, have rocks thrown at him for the name of Jesus. If somebody's throwing rocks at me, I'm just going to be like, stop it! You know? But that's what he was willing to do. He says, when he came to Corinthians, he was in weakness and fear and in much trembling. What could cause such a state in this seemingly ferocious guy that was willing to go through all these things? You know what it was? It's a healthy fear of the Lord. It's a healthy fear of the Lord. When Paul's talking about this, he's not saying I had fear of shame. A healthy fear of the Lord is not about fear of shame. It's not about fear of rejection or embarrassment. That's not why Paul was trembling. That's not why he was in much weakness. It wasn't that he was like, well, I'm scared of being shamed. I'll mess up and, you know, ultimately, you know, I'll just, I'll definitely destine someone to hell. By the way, that's not a really good argument. Because here's the thing. Without you getting the good news to them or somebody getting the good news to them, they're already destined to hell. It's only the saving grace that comes to the knowledge of the gospel that brings the message that rescues them from, from that, that journey, that path. 
that highway of destruction. But this is not why Paul is trembling and in weakness and much fear. He's not fear of shame. It's not because he's in a fear of safety. Apparently, Paul didn't really care as long as he was obedient to the Lord. He would go through whatever. It wasn't a fear of danger that the, that, you know, the Corinthians might, you know, jail him or, you know, shipwreck him or, you know, all these other things. You know, Paul basically said, well, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He said, you know, I'm crucified with Christ and it's not I who no who, who live, who longer lives. The life I live in the body, I live for him who loved me and gave himself up for me. It wasn't for fear of safety. Paul had not a fear of danger or damage to reputation. Healthy fear of the Lord is all about this. It's about faithfully serving well. It's wanting to love someone so much that you don't want to screw up. You don't want to mess up. You realize with great gratitude what they've done for you, and you just can't wait to demonstrate that back to them. Imagine, if you will, I know it's not hard to imagine, but those loved ones that, and you realize how much you loved them, and you want to do something really, really special, and you were so giddy about it, you were nervous, and you're kind of weak about it. You just, you just couldn't wait to do something good for them because you realized what they'd done for you. You wanted to faithfully serve well. Paul had a healthy fear of the Lord because he recognized that this is a holy and great God and, and there would be no reason for him to demonstrate his love to us. That just boggles the mind. It scares the snot out of me sometimes. But at the same time, I realize how incredibly loving he is. And it makes me understand my weakness. It makes me understand my des- it, it helps direct my desire. It helps disturb my expectations that, that I'm like shaking to God. I don't know what you're going to do. I'm excited to see it. Sometimes I'm terrified that I'm going to mess up, but I'm excited about what you're going to do. I want to faithfully serve you well. And Paul said, this was the evidence you saw in me. This was a part of that proclaiming. It was done with simplicity, but it was done with a healthy fear of the Lord. And a sense of urgency that came from that. In Exhibit 3, it was also done because it was proclaimed through the Spirit. Paul states that it was not absolutely was not his persuasive words of wisdom that saved the people in the church of God at Corinth. He says, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now I'm going to tell you, just to be honest, we probably have that a little topsy-turvy. If I'm going to be honest, in the American church, we have that a little topsy-turvy. Because we expect a persuasive speech and brilliant words. And if that's not good, then, you know, we don't want any of that. But if it's good and the Spirit happens to move, okay, that's awesome. But if we had someone that just was not super brilliant, and I don't think I'm super brilliant, believe me, I'm a nerd, but I'm not brilliant. And they were just to preach their heart out. And it might not be clever. It might not be brilliant. But God poured out a pouring of His grace and Spirit in that moment. And people got saved. And there was a revival that broke out in the church that led to an awakening in the community that led to a movement across the nation. Man, I hope we would share that. We would be blown away by that. That was what was happening in the church at Corinth. Paul says it wasn't because of because of the Spirit moving. Let's never get that backwards. 
It's good to expect people to be prepared and do what they need to do. That's a good expectation. I need that more in my life. I need to hold myself more accountable to that. But more than anything, we need to be desperate that, God, You would demonstrate Your power. Because without Your power, it's just a talk. It's just an organization. It's just a function. It's just a program. But with God doing something, lives are changed. And Paul says, I wanted your faith not to rest on human wisdom, but on the very power of God. Paul knew his place. He clearly declared, you're not saved because of me. I could never save you. Although Paul wished he could help save some. In fact, he makes the bold declaration that, I'll just be honest, I don't think I could ever make. He says, even for his own people, Israel, he says, I would be willing to be accursed if they would be saved. You know what Paul is saying there? He says, I'd be willing to go to hell if they could be saved. I don't think I can make that claim. I love people, but I don't think I want that. I want Jesus. I want to live. And Paul's recognizing, I can't save anybody. God can. And God does. And that when Jesus saves, there is a clear demonstration of His power taking hold mightily in the life of of a believer, and in the life of a church. And that defining mark of a saint is a newfound devotion to the Lord that demonstrates faith and this devotion to the Lord. And this is only because of the work of the Spirit. The work of the indwelling Spirit says, I take up residence within you. I, I, I restore a right relationship with the soul between you and God. But then not only that, is there this new position, this new relationship, but also the Holy Spirit, when He takes hold of a life, He not only restores who we are with Jesus, but He renovates this life that we're living right now for Jesus. I heard a preacher this week. Yes, I listen to other preachers. It's a good habit. You heard me say that. And he was talking about what it means to live and what it's like to grow up in the Bible Belt. And he pastors a church in the Bible Belt. In fact, a very large church in the Bible Belt. And he says, you know, I grew up in this, this kind of home, and I see this even now, that in the Bible Belt, you know, we, we hold it up as this kind of like, oh, it's the holy land of America. It's where all the good people that love Jesus live. And we say it like that, Jesus. And he says, but I don't always see the evidence of that. He says in the Bible Belt, one of the faulty things is that people will proclaim to love Jesus and they will come to church and they will consider that the full extent of their living for Christ to come to worship once a week. And there is no visible transformation of their life there within, beyond. And he says this, that is not a result of the gospel. That is a result of religion. He says the result of the gospel is a life that is transformed. And yes, because we live in a fallen world, we will fall at times, but we fall forward because our desires and everything about us, our newfound devotion and demonstration of that devotion is transformed because God is doing a work within us and through us and from us. It is he who he who sustains, it is he who sanctifies, it is he who transforms life. And if we've bought if we've bought anything else, hear me out. We bought into something else other than Jesus. 
So what's the big idea about all of this? Why do we present this case? Why do we look at these exhibits? We look at this because if we're going to be awake, if we're going to be alert, if we're going to remember that Christ has saved us and now has ownership of our life, and that is meant to transform everything within us, through us, from us, everything, there's going to be evidence of our proclaiming Him with our lips and our lives. And if we're going to do that, we've got to remember to keep it simple. It doesn't mean that if you've learned evangelism explosion or faith or share Jesus without fear or everyday a believer or witness, all those other programs, those are great programs. It doesn't mean those are bad things. But it doesn't necessarily take those things to be obedient to what God has told you to share about who you were, about who He is and what He has done and now who you are because of Him. We remember to keep the cross and the Christ there. The message has to get there, guys. And God has given that task, that privilege to the church, to you and I as the disciple, to get the message there, whether it's across the street, across the world, across the state, across the nation, across the hall, across the plant, across the cubicle, across the room, across the dinner table. He has given us that responsibility and privilege. And the message not only has to get there, it has to get out. Let us not be guilty of unintentionally sharing some kind of works-based religion or a do-good philosophy as if that is enough. And sometimes, if we're not careful, our silence unfortunately tells the world that's the case. That if we're not willing to demonstrate with both our lips and our lives, we're saying that works is enough. If we're merely just demonstrating with our lives, we're saying, just do good. Now, if we similarly demonstrate with our lips, but our lives don't reflect it, then we're saying, hey, be a hypocrite. It's got to be both. We cannot be silent. Second, what's the big idea? Not only we to do it with the simplicity and share the Christ and the cross, but we've got to check ourselves and where we are with the Lord. Is there a healthy fear of the Lord? What's the position we're taking when we're making this proclamation? Are we doing it because, well, we want to make ourselves feel good that we checked off our duties? Or are we doing it because, gosh, Jesus loves me and He loves them and I've got to get it to them because I know what He's done for me. And we're not willing to share. You know what that says? It says that there's not a healthy fear of the Lord. Instead, what we're overcome with is apathy. Either due to distractions or misplaced priorities or due to ignorance Lack of know-how. And if you know the Gospel, if the Gospel's transformed your life, that should never be the case. Uh, maybe irrational fears. Jesus has already taken care of the sting of death, the, the oppression of sin, and, and, our, and what happens in the hereafter. Share that with some brothers this morning. Anything else is an irrational fear. Or maybe it's powerlessness. We're missing out on what God can do that is larger than ourselves. We may think we feel powerless because it's just too big of a task. But let me tell you, if you're thinking of making the task is bigger than our God, you've got misplaced few. And third, we've got to seek the Lord in His power. He's the only one who can save. So that should draw us to our knees and say, God, I'm praying for my friend. God, I'm praying for my family member. God, I'm praying for my child. I'm praying for my coworker. And I'm asking You, Jesus, to demonstrate Your power. I can get the message to them and I fear You enough to share it, but only You can save. And I don't want their faith to be dependent on my words. I want it to be dependent on Your work of the cross. Help me proclaim it. And may 
the name of Eastgate not be about, hey, we're a Baptist church that looks like a cake. Help it be that those people love Jesus and they proclaim Him. They are awake to what He's done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us in this moment to just to take a moment to pause and abandon whatever is holding us back. And Lord, help us get a healthy dose, a lavish view of Your grace. And trust in, in what You are telling us to do and how to respond. And I pray that we will respond with an obedience that says, You are the Lord. Here I am. Send me. Here I am. I'm following after whatever You want me to do. Sign me up. Help us respond with our lips and our lives. 